Matthew chapter 2, the mysterious Magi. We, uh, we had uh, Shane kindly read for us this morning from the first 12 verses of Matthew 2. That's where we're turning to now. Though we will be jumping around scripture um, to a large degree, so um, be ready with your Bibles to do so. Um, the Magi are a mysterious group. We, uh, we I mentioned last uh, Sunday when I was able to do a very, very brief sermon, but um, we mentioned that Christmas is so often a season for correcting false traditions and superstitions amongst the church. And um, there is probably none greater than the mysterious Magi. So that's what we'll be doing this morning. Hopefully you've got there in your Bibles now. Let's just pray and then we'll study. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the richness of your word, the depth of your word, for the clarity of your word. And Lord, I pray that as we come to this passage today, that through uh, the rest of scripture combined with this passage, that there might be clarity in our hearts as well. And that we might see your glorious plan emerging through scripture. And that uh, more glory may go to your name as a result. Bless our time of study, we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay. So, Matthew chapter 2. The Magi. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold... Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Right. Herein lies the issue. We, we uh, have these traditional Christmas services. We did one last, last week, and we have... Um, readings and carols and readings and carols and readings and carols. And what traditionally happens is we have the reading from Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, this whole section about the Magi coming, and then everybody stands up and sings, We three kings of Orient are. On a test, that would give you zero out of three. There weren't three, there weren't kings, and they weren't from the Orient. And so this is part of the problem is that we have this, this crazy tradition. And what normally happens in your nativity scenes is you see these three men, they're coming from the east. How do you know they're coming from the east? Because they're coming from, with camels. And they come typically with these turbans on their heads. I don't know why that tradition has arisen. And they come bearing their gifts and then they turn up. And where do they turn up? They turn up at the stable in Bethlehem. And there they are at the stable of Bethlehem with their gifts. And they, they come and they say, oh, shepherds, nice to see you, shepherds. How are you doing, shepherds? And, they, and they, they, they greet the shepherds and they come and join the shepherds in worshipping the baby Jesus. All a lot of nonsense. None of it is true. None of it is true. And many of the answers are here in the text before us, and they're just ignored. And many other things that are in the text simply raise even greater questions. So let's look again at Matthew 2, and let's look at the details. Now, first of all, when? When does this happen? This happens after Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Does it happen when Jesus is born? Does it happen at the time Jesus is born? No, it happens 
after Jesus is born in Bethlehem. So chronologically, this is something that comes later. How much later? We're not told right now. But we will discuss that a little later on. So after that time, when Jesus is born, in the days of Herod the king, just worth noting in passing, this Herod is the Herod known as Herod the Great, It is a different Herod from the Herod that deals with Jesus at the time of the crucifixion. That's Herod uh, Antipas, rather, uh, who is his... No, Antipas. Antiper was the father. Antipas is the son. Um, That's his son uh, who was was king then. Now, this is King Herod the Great. He's the one who built uh, the temple to its current... Uh, to its current, at that time, um, size. It was an incredible work that was accomplished. He made the, the temple larger and more glorious than even it was in Solomon's day. But he had a few issues, to say, to say the least. Uh, Herod was a bit of a madman. And obviously this passage comes through into its conclusion, and we see Herod, Herod slaughtering the young children Um, young baby boys of Jerusalem at that time. We'll talk maybe more about that at the end. But uh, simply to note that that was part of the course with Herod. He was that kind of guy. He was so paranoid about losing his position of power that like so many megalomaniacs, he did anything and everything without limitation to try and maintain his power. He had, uh, throughout the course of his life, a total of ten wives. There was one in particular who was his favorite of his wives, and he executed her because there were rumors of treason. And that basically screwed him up for about the next 20 years. And it ended up with uh, two twin sons through that wife, and he ended up executing both of them as well. He executed a young and upcoming priest. He executed an old and established high priest. Anybody who might be more popular than him was not allowed to continue to breathe. He was absolutely paranoid. In fact, one commentator of the day said that it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. Because Herod, though only nominally so, was part of Judaism and therefore wouldn't eat pig. And so the joke was that it was safer to be his pig than to be his son. He was just a horrible man. And so when he hears that there might be one child who is going to be king of the Jews, a position which, as far as he's concerned, he held then he needs to kill all of the children just to make sure he kills the one that he wants to kill. That's the kind of guy he was. So this is the days of Herod the king. And what happens in these days is, behold, wise men come. Now, I don't know where this idea of king comes from. The Greek is a magoi. We call it magi. And the magi were um, a bunch. And I, wise men is a fairly good translation. But they are not just wise men in the sense of, ah, oh man, I, don't, I can't do the crossword this morning. I'm stuck with the Sudoku. Let's ask that guy over there. He's really wise. You know, it's not that kind of wise men. It was a particular type of training that they'd had. And the wise men that are being referred to were, the Magi were a group of people who were highly regarded in their day, whose studies were a mixture of what we would consider superstition and science, kind of combined. They studied astrology and astronomy. The the two were kind of 
much the same at the time. And we know about these wise men, these magi, because we've come across them in Scripture before. So I want you to keep a ribbon or a pen or a something or a finger in, um, in Matthew 2, because we're coming back there. But turn with me, if you would, to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. Because I think it's important that we know who and what a magi are. And it's not something that would have been unknown to read as a scripture, and therefore it shouldn't be something that is unknown to us. In Daniel chapter 2, in the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. And so Nebuchadnezzar is having dreams, and he needs people to interpret the dreams. So in verse 2, it says this, The king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, and the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell, to tell the king his dreams. And so the magicians there are the magi. They are this group of people who were the wise men of the king's court of Nebuchadnezzar, and he called them in and... He asked them to interpret his dream. And so the Chaldeans, verse 4, O king, live forever, tell your servants the dream, and uh, then we'll give you an interpretation. And so the king, who's not dumb, he's, he's like, well, you know, if I were to tell them the dream, then they could say, ah, yes, you know, you're, you're, you're dreaming about falling, and that means, and, you know, and they'll trot off whatever. He needs answers. He doesn't want them to bluff. So he basically tells them, well, you tell me what the dream is, and then I'll know that you've got the interpretation right. That kind of messed up their plans some, to some degree, didn't it? So <clears throat> uh, he says, if you show me the dream and its interpretation, verse 6, you receive my, me, from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. And they ask him again, um, <laughs> please tell us the dream and then we can tell you the interpretation. He says, I know with certainty that you're trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, that, but there is but one sentence for you, you have agreed to speak lying, corrupt words before me till the time has changed. Therefore, tell me the dream and I shall know that you show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demands. Well, that they're actually wrong. Because then what happens is that Daniel is able to answer the dream. And we know about this. This kicks off in verse 17. Um, well, verse 16. Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he may show the interpretation of the dream. And I don't want to spend forever in Daniel 2 because there's a lot we've got to cover today. But suffice to say this. Daniel who most people don't really understand Daniel's story. Daniel was taken into captivity in the first of three waves of captivity done by the conquering Babylonians. The first wave happened in 605 BC. And at that time, they took the bulk of um, the, the brightest and best. They basically took the best young men that Israel had to offer, and they took them and trained them so that they could be the best of Babylon as well like so many close to the king, so that they could be trusted, they were made eunuchs. This wasn't somebody being made a eunuch when they were a baby. Daniel was probably about 17 years of age, something around that age. And he was neutered. 
and made a eunuch and taken to Babylon to study there and to study under the, the, the great Magi of Babylon and to be part of the Babylonian school of the Magi's. He was one of them. And Daniel here comes and is, you know, and you know the story hopefully, he is given the dream, <coughs> is able to communicate to the king the dream and is able to communicate the king to the king the interpretation of the dream, which is a biblically very, very important one. And one I would love to spend time on, but we can't. Suffice to say, it's to deal with future empires. And it puts Nebuchadnezzar in his place. You're a truly great king. You have a place in history. But there's going to be other great kings coming after you. You're just one in a line. But there is another king coming that's greater than you all. And will conquer you all. And will rule over all. And he's the one before whom you should bow. That's essentially the message to Nebuchadnezzar. And so Daniel, in giving him the dream, and in giving him the interpretation... Um, the result is twofold. Firstly, there are um, all the things that were previously promised were, were done. So he saves the annihilation and the punishment by death of the other magi there. Um, and all the gifts and, and honor is given to him as requested. Look at verse 48 of chapter 2. The king gave Daniel high honors, many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon, the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Who is head of the Magi? Daniel. Daniel is the head of the Magi. And he made a request of the king and he appointed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. So Daniel is put in charge of the region. He then sub, uh, sublets, wrong word, but you know what I mean. He, he gives the, the, the practical running of the administrative stuff to Shadrach, Meshach and, and Abednego. And then what he is able to do is remain in the king's court where he is head of the Magi. That is who we have come across who were Magi before. And when we're told, and again, you should probably keep a finger and a ribbon in Daniel because we're coming back there. But <clears throat> when we're told then that wise men are coming to Jerusalem from the east, there's a couple of other things to note there. Firstly, they're coming from the east. Now, when we think of today, we talk about something from the far east. We're thinking China, Southeast Asia, that kind of region, the land of the rising sun and all of that. That's not what's being spoken of here. When the Bible speaks of the east, it's talking about east of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. It's basically talking what they would have called Persia, what we today refer to as Iran and Iraq, that kind of region. And so the Magi were basically from, from Persia, from Babylon, which is where the Magi we see in the book of Daniel are as well. And so... They're coming from Persia, from Babylon, so to speak, um, most likely. And they are coming, but notice where they're coming to. They're coming to Jerusalem. In all these nativity scenes, Jesus is born in Bethlehem. There he is in the stable. There's this, the, the, the donkeys hanging around at birth. There's the shepherds. And there are the kings. And they're there in, 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 uh, in, in the stable in Bethlehem. But first of all, they come to Jerusalem. They didn't know to come to Bethlehem. That's important to know. We'll come back to that in a moment. And they say, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose. 
There's so many problems in that statement that we don't even, you know, where do we even begin? Firstly, these, these Babylonian magi want to worship a Jewish king. Secondly, they want to worship him because they've seen his star when it rose. They saw his star when it rose. Now, first of all, I want you to understand lots of different things here. Because we, we've seen recently, um, in the last couple of weeks, we saw an astronomical event that apparently hadn't been seen since about the 1200s or something, which is when Jupiter and Saturn and then what is called the Christmas star all come together. Now, there is a star that has been known as a Christmas star because people have said, well, maybe that's the star that would have been in the sky around that sort of time. These stars would have come together and that would have been what was seen. No, 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 no. This is not some regular star. Stars can be seen in the sky, right? This star couldn't be seen and then it rose. During the course of this passage, we will discover that this star appears and disappears at least twice. This star moves from east to west, and then the star moves from north to south. And eventually, when we come uh, to the latter part of the chapter, uh, of, the, of the story rather, then what we're going to see is that the star is going to hover over a house. We're not talking about a star in the sky above an area where there's, you know, if there's a star above us right now, we can say, wow, the star's right above my house. But then somebody five miles away is thinking, yeah, the star's right above my house. That doesn't delineate any particular house. There is a star that is hovering over an individual house. We know that's not a literal star as we would think of a star, because then the earth would have been obliterated long before the star got even close. And the final thing that really distinguishes that this is not what we would think of as the, in the term star, is that it is his star. It is a star that belongs to the Messiah uniquely. It is a star that is associated with him. And for some reason, these magi had associated the coming of a Messiah with a star that didn't exist rising up and then leading them to the place where the Jewish Messiah, remember these are Babylonian Magi, where the Jewish Messiah is born. What on earth is going on? Well, it goes way, way back. Let's turn to Genesis 49. And again, we lose so much of this, I say this so often, because we just don't know our Bibles well enough, we don't follow the thread, we don't follow the storyline, and therefore we don't really know what's going on when we come to the New Testament so often. In Genesis 49, Jacob, who is close to death, is blessing his sons, and he, he basically prophesies over them all. And he prophesies over Judah. Judah's not the eldest, Reuben is the eldest, but he loses his rights as firstborn because of his immorality. And much of the blessing goes to Judah. Judah, in verse 8, is told, Judah, your brothers shall praise you. That's a play on the word Judah. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion... And as a lioness, who dares to rouse him? So speaking of Judah prophetically as being 
a tribe of great might. Verse 10, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him. Literally, until Shiloh comes. Until Shiloh comes. Many versions will say Shiloh there. The scepter was the thing that the king would have. It was like, uh, we picture it as like a staff with a, typically a golden orb upon it. That kind of thing. That would be the king's scepter. And, and the one who had the scepter would have the right to rule. The right to rule. Um, you know, so those of you following the Mandalorian, that's the, the, the dark saber, you know. You, you have this mythology in, in stories from, you know, you know ancient kings of, of you know, biblical times right the way through to Star Wars now. I mean, this idea that there is a particular object that gives one the right to rule. I grew up in England and of course there's King Arthur and the, the, the sword, you know, um, Excalibur, that's the name, pulled out from the stone, you know, all this mythology. This idea that somebody who has something has the right to rule. That's what the scepter represents, it's the right to rule. And so Judah will have the right to rule and it will not depart from him. The, the, the final ruler is going to come um, from Judah because it says until Shiloh comes to him. So the right for the rulership that Israel will have belongs to Judah until a particular time. And the time is until Shiloh comes. Now, I would love to spend a lot more time on this, but suffice to say, if I give you the Cliff Notes version, that Shiloh is a reference to the Messiah. A, it was seen by the rabbis, even of those that day, as being a messianic reference. And the idea is that the Messiah will come, and that, and then he will have the scepter, and then there will be no need for the scepter to go to anybody else, because to him shall be the obedience of the people. And uh, I could get distracted if I continue that prophecy, so I'll leave it there. So the scepter coming to Shiloh or to Judah, for Shiloh, for the Messiah, is something that is contained way, way back there uh, in, in the book of Genesis. Now when we turn, if we go a little further, we'll go to the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers. So if we turn to Numbers, and we turn to Numbers 24. So Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers. That's where we're going. Now, in Numbers, as you're turning to chapter 24, in Numbers 22 to 24, there is a, a, the story of a chap called Balaam. Balaam um, is, careful what I say, but ba Balaam is well known for his, his donkey. That's the one that he is well known for. I was going to make a bad joke, but I'll leave it. Um, but Balaam is known for his donkey, and Balaam was called to come and curse Israel. And he was summoned by Balak. Balak decides that he will get Balaam. And the reason he wants Balaam is this, is that Balaam had a reputation. Balaam wasn't just anybody. Balaam was a person who was a magi. He was another magi. And he had a degree of power, seemingly supernatural. That whomever he cursed was cursed, and whomever he blessed was blessed. So... Balak wants Israel cursed, so he gets Balaam to come along to curse Israel. The trouble is, is that every time that, that Balaam opens his mouth, the spirit comes upon him, and he ends up being the one who blesses Israel. 
And in the midst of that blessing, there are a couple of messianic prophecies that are given as he blesses Israel. And the last of those happens in the final oracle, and that's the most significant one. And we'll turn there, chapter 24 and verse 15, Balaam's final oracle. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is open, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. That's fascinating. By the way, when you get to Isaiah and he's got all that imagery of eyes being opened and eyes being closed in judgment, here's somebody who came to judge Israel who has his eyes opened and now is only able to bless Verse 17 says this, I see him but, but, but not now, I behold him but, but not near. So he, he's seeing someone, but that person isn't here yet, they're not near, they're, they're, this is something far off that he's seeing. He says, a star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Seth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly, and from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of the cities. Right. The connection between the coming of the Messiah and the judgment upon Edom and Moab we've been dealing with in our Isaiah study, so I'll leave that for now. But notice this that the scepter that was prophesied in Genesis 49, that, that is connected in Genesis 49 to Shiloh, to Messiah, is also mentioned here, and it's clearly messianic. The crushing of the forehead is an allusion back to Genesis 3. That this is the, the seed of the woman, this is the coming Messiah, this is the one with the scepter, with the right to rule, and he will be delineated by what? A star shall come out of Jacob. And so, when he rises up, there is a star that rises up with him. Now, what is this star? We're not told. But I think that retrospectively, when we see any kind of shining star in the sky, we see its brightness radiating. When we see shining brightness in scripture, most often it's referring to the glory of God. And that connection is made frequently in scripture. We talk about the, the heavenly host showing up, the angels and the cherubim and the seraphim, and the glory of God shining around them, and yet the term heavenly hosts is also used in scripture to speak of the stars. And so that connection is made by scripture. So I'm not making anything up here. That connection is made. And when the, the, the shepherds are called, there is the glory of God that is there when they get their message. And then for these magi, it seems as if the glory of God, this shining brightness, is what is seen by them also. It's the same shining glory of God. Now, you've got to understand the significance of this. It was the glory of God. Okay, let's take a step back. When, when God called Moses, the glory appeared to him in a burning bush on the hillside. When the shepherds were there on the hillside with their sheep, doing exactly what Moses was doing in Exodus 3, they have the glory of God appear to them just like it did to Moses in Exodus 3, right? 
And then that same glory that started with the shepherd Moses then leads the people Israel where they should go through the wilderness. And now that same glory that has appeared to the shepherds on the hillside is leading Gentile Magi from Babylon to the Messiah. Isn't that astonishing? That the imagery that was there for Israel's history is now being applied to Gentiles. Isn't that just fascinating? So the Magi, <coughs> they knew, how did they know that there would be a star for the Messiah? Numbers. Because Balaam, who came to curse Israel, ended up blessing Israel, ended up having his eyes opened by God, and he goes back and takes that prophecy with him back to Babylon, where he came from. And then, a few centuries later, that whole ministry, that whole academy, that whole university of, of Magi study in Babylon is overseen by Daniel. And Daniel is said, look, you can oversee this whole region and you can be in charge of the Magi. And Daniel says, okay, you guys, you can oversee the region. I'm in charge of this. And here we have all of this study, many of which would have been involving false gods, many of which would have been involving astrology in a, in, in a, in a predictive sense, which scripture clearly condemns, Deuteronomy 18 and, and Isaiah as well, uh, Isaiah 47, that, that this is forbidden. And Daniel is essentially, as I understand it, mopping up and cleaning up the study of the Magi in Babylon. And he's gathering the good and getting rid of the bad. And he would have had Balaam's prophecy. He'd have had it anyway, but he can, he can emphasize that that's come to the Magi. And so the Magi, to them specifically, was given a prophecy concerning the coming of a Jewish Messiah who would be king, scepter, and who would rule, scepter. And a Jewish king, that they would know that the Jewish king was coming because the star would rise up. That's how the Babylonian Magi knew. So what did they do? Did they, for a period of hundreds of years, almost 500 years, did they just keep looking up at the star? Looking at the stars tonight, fellow Magi? See anything different? Nah. Any new stars? Nah. Okay, we'll try again tomorrow. Do you, do you think that's what happened? That's not what happened. They knew when the star was going to come. They knew when the star was going to come. How on earth did they know that? Go back to Daniel. Back to Daniel, and we're going to move forwards this time to chapter 9. Daniel is in charge of this school. Daniel 9 occurs in the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus, a descendant, by descendant a Mede, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans in the first year of his reign. I, Daniel, perceived in the books, in, in the books, the number of years that, according to the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet, must pass before the end of the desolation of Jerusalem, namely 70 years. Let me unpack all of that for you, okay? Daniel 9 happens in the rule of Darius. He is not a Babylonian, he is a Mede. The Babylonians have now been conquered by the Medo-Persians. So the conquerors have been conquered. And now Israel, who are still in captivity in Babylon, are now under the rule of different rulers. 
Daniel understands, and this is going to be crucial, he understands that with the changing of hierarchy on the earth, there are things going on in the hierarchy in the heavens. That's going to become very clear. And what Daniel is doing, this great prophet of God, this prophet who got revelation after revelation, what is he doing? He's doing Bible study. I think that far too often we think that the prophets and the authors of Scripture basically just didn't do any study. They just sat down and God spoke to them and they just wrote it down. You need to understand that the vast majority of the revelation of Scripture that each biblical author writes is, comes from their own study of Scripture and the additional revelation is just a small percentage of what they give us. And so there is this progressive revelation where little bits added, and little bits added, and little bits added, and people are building on what's gone before. And we get this one united picture. And so Daniel is studying, and specifically he's studying the book of Jeremiah. We know because he tells us what he's learning from that study, that he's reading probably Jeremiah 25 and Jeremiah 29, where he's basically looking and seeing that Jeremiah says that the period of time that is going to elapse from uh, the take, being taken into captivity to the re-establishing of Jerusalem, the, uh, the end of the desolations of Jerusalem, as he puts it, is a period of 70 years. And so what he does in response to that Bible study is he prays. That's always a good thing to do, to pray in response to what you study in Scripture. <clears throat> and so he turns his face to God, seeks him in prayer, and he prays, and he confesses the sin of Israel, which led to that, and he prays uh, for it all to come to an end. And he prays as you come towards the end of it. Um, and I'll, the prayer wraps up in verse 19 of, um, of Daniel 9. O Lord, hear, O Lord, forgive. O Lord, pay attention and act. Delay not for your own sake, O my God, because your city and your people are called by your name. So Daniel is praying on behalf of the people, the Jews, on behalf of the city, Jerusalem, that he knows already from prophecy. Haven't got time, we'll do that another day. But he knows how important Jerusalem is in prophecy. And there is Jerusalem, temple destroyed, city destroyed, and there, miles and miles away, over in Babylon in captivity. And he prays. And because Scripture said it will be 70 years, Daniel nonetheless feels the need to pray that it, would be ha that it would happen. And what is incredible to me is he says in that prayer, don't delay. Don't delay. So hold on a second. Do you believe in the Bible or not, Daniel? When, when, when God says it's going to be 70 years, it's going to be 70 years. Is it possible for there to be a delay? Why are you praying for no delay? Well, I gave you a hint of that a little bit earlier on. The captivity into Babylon happened in three stages. The first stage, as I said, was 605 BC. The next stage was eight years later in 597 BC. And then the last stage was in 586 BC. Daniel's captivity began at the first phase of captivity. That, that destruction spreads over almost 20 years. And Daniel was the first wave. 
He and his, his, his colleagues, his peers, were taken, they were neutered, and they were put into training right from the very beginning. The actual destruction of the temple did not happen at that time. That happened a little bit later. So when does the 70 years start? Does it start with Daniel? Does it start with the destruction of the temple? Or does it start when the captivity and the destruction is being completed 20 years later? So Daniel pleads, don't delay. Please may that 70 years. You know, you can make an argument for any of those three dates, but please, for me it started then, for the sake of my people, may it start then. Please don't delay. And while I was speaking and praying, verse 20, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, and presenting my plea before Yahweh my God for the holy hill of my God, i.e. for Jerusalem, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. And he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, Oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. And I have come to you to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. And so Gabriel, the angel Gabriel, comes to speak to Daniel about the coming of Messiah. The same angel that comes and gives a message to Mary sometime later. Or to Joseph, rather. Sorry. Um, so, 70 weeks, verse 24. This is the prophecy, that um, the vision that Gabriel gives to, uh, gives to Daniel. 70 weeks. Now, before we go any further, let's just stop there. Weeks is a translation that has become popularized. The word in in the Hebrew is different from the typical word for weeks. It literally means 77. It would be an equivalent of the English word dozen, which means a group of 12. It it doesn't matter 12 what, it's just a dozen. That's what it means. And here, the word means sevens. So 77s are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Okay, very, very briefly, we are not doing a thorough exegesis of Daniel chapter 9 today, okay? But very, very briefly, there are a period of seven, and there are 70 of those sevens. And they are being decreed specifically about your people, that's the Jews, and about the Jewish city of Jerusalem. That's very clear. Daniel in Daniel chapter 2, and then 7 and chapter 8, it's very clear that they're coming into a period which is called the time of the Gentiles. A time when the Jewish rule and reign of of David and Solomon has now come to an end, and that predominantly Israel is going to be under the rule of Gentile people. But within that period of the time of the Gentiles, there is a particular 70 period, 77 years, that's 490 if you're not good at math, that have been cut out from within that time of the Gentiles that are unique specifically for a purpose for the Jewish people. Okay? And for the city of Jerusalem. And for the, Jews, for the Jews and for Jerusalem, these 77-year periods 
are going to do the following. They're going to finish the transgression. In other words, it will bring to completion the rebellion of Israel. It will put an end to sin. It will atone for their iniquity. It will bring in everlasting righteousness. And it will seal the vision and prophet. That means essentially fulfill what, the vi- what visions and prophecies have been given by God. Um, and uh, finally, it will anoint the most holy place. And so there is, um, there is the, the anointing of the temple in Jerusalem. In other words, all of this is relevant to the Jews. Their sin will be dealt with, the kingdom will be established, and the prophecies will come to pass. When will that all happen? That will all happen within 70 periods of seven years. That will happen within the 70 periods of seven years. All of those various, I think it was six different accomplishments that will happen to those people. Right? Okay, know therefore, because it's so important, because these things will be accomplished, know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Okay, we have 77, but there will be seven weeks period of seven weeks from the going out of the word until for the rebuilding of Jerusalem and then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moats but in a troubled time and after 62 weeks an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing okay let's stop there so we have a seven week period a 7-7 period, and then a 62-7 period. And when that 7, and then the 62, and again, we're not doing a thorough exegesis of every last detail. It pains me, it grieves me to have to skim over this, but I've got to get back to Matthew, haven't I? So let's, let's bear with me. But I want you to see that when the 7 and the 62 total 69 periods of 7 years, that is, just do the math for you, 483 years, After 483 years, the anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. So there is a one who is an anointed one. What does the word anointed one mean? Literally, Messiah. Messiah is anointed one. So the Messiah is going to come and then be cut off after 483 years. 483 years. What was the starting point of that clock? It was the decree to rebuild to restore Jerusalem and the temple. That was the decree. Now, there are four different events in history that people have associated with this, and only two of them really bear much understanding. In most of our evangelical circles, the popular version has become that Artaxerxes, he gave out a couple of... um, he made a couple of statements, rather. In in 458 BC, to Ezra, um, there was... Um, there was a decree that's found in Ezra chapter 7 verses 11 to 26 and then in chapter 2 of Nehemiah there is permission that is given to Nehemiah in 444 BC to rebuild the city and that was popularised by um, a guy years ago called Robert Anderson he was a British guy actually I think he was head of Scotland Yard um, in London um, and he was a very clever man and he, he worked out that from the time of Ahasuerus uh, 444 BC 483 years later that Jesus um, is, is crucified 
Um, but he got a few of his dates wrong and didn't get it quite right, and he was later corrected by uh, Harold Honer, who um, basically takes the same start date of Artaxerxes, and he comes up with an ending that is uh, basically the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Um, and that of the two is the more accurate. There's a couple of problems, though. First, the problem is this, <coughs> that after 62 weeks, there, there is this anointed one um, who comes. Now, it talks about him being cut off, but it's initially his coming that is the main thing. And the bigger problem is Artaxerxes didn't give a decree. He simply said to Nehemiah, you can have permission. The decree had already been given. And I think, and it's, it's a more minority view in, in evangelical circles, but I'm, I'm really convinced by it. I think that the decree is the decree of Cyrus. The decree of Cyrus. And I'm going to tell you why, for many reasons. Firstly, the decree that Cyrus gives is not simply a king saying, yeah, yeah, you can have permission, go ahead and build. It's an actual decree. It's a decree that's given out saying, go, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple, go, you can do it. And that decree is the decree that is a legitimate decree, and it is the one that is focused on by Scripture. In Isaiah 44, verse 28, and Isaiah 45, verse 13, Isaiah prophesies that Cyrus will make that decree. He names him by name almost 200 years before the decree is given. I call that giving it focus, would you not? Isaiah says, this will happen. It's really important. This guy, I'll give you his name so we know there's no confusion. His name's Cyrus, and he will give a decree that, Jer that Jerusalem and the temple can be rebuilt. Isaiah 44 and Isaiah 45. Then, when, when Cyrus does give that decree, the fulfillment of that decree to rebuild Jerusalem is, fa is found in 2 Chronicles 36, verses 22 and 23. And the um, fulfillment of the rebuilding of the temple on the basis of that is found in Ezra chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, and Ezra chapter 6, verses 1 to 5. In other words, before Artaxerxes is even on the scene, the decree has been given and permission has been given and the work is being done. So I have no doubt that Cyrus's decree is the decree. And here's the other real uh, kind of clear thing that, that nails it for me is this, is that Cyrus made that decree less than a year after Daniel had his vision. Daniel says, don't delay, please don't delay. And he says, the decree's coming. And within a year, the decree had come and that began a timetable, 483 years. And Daniel is given that vision, and he is specifically told, the head of the Magi's in Babylon is told, in 483 years the Messiah is coming. And he knows that the Magi have been given a prophecy specific to them, which is that there will be a star that will tell them that the Messiah has been born and that that will come about in 483 years' time. The people who needed to look were told. They were told what to look for, and they were told when to look for it. That's why Babylonian Magi saw a star in the sky, a bright, shining glory of God, when the glory of God appears to shepherds on the hillside, at about the same time, the glory of God appears to Babylonian Magi in Babylon. And then a whole bunch of them get up and they leave and they make the journey. 
Now, there's no direct flights in those days. There wouldn't even been a highway. It was a long and difficult journey. And let's then look at that in Matthew chapter 2 one more time. Those of you wanting to know about the 70th week of Daniel, you'll have to have that another day, I'm afraid. But that's the period of time that we call the tribulation. It doesn't start immediately after the Messiah, as some would suggest, but rather there is another event that is spoken of there that then triggers the start of the 70th week that's carved out from the time of the Gentiles, and that will be the last seven years of the time of the Gentiles. But that's for another day. Back to Matthew 2. So, they come from the east, Babylon, saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? The one with the scepter, the one with the right to rule. We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. Now, hopefully, all of that makes sense. And when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. They are troubled. Why are they troubled? Why would three people turning up in Jerusalem trouble them? I don't think there were three. I think there was a huge crap. You, you've been part of, of, a, of a school in Babylon that for nearly five centuries has been waiting for this year to come to see this thing. And you're like, oh, no. It's a long way. You, you three go. What's the, what's the, I wrote down, actually. What's the names that they gave them? Caspar, Melchior, and Balthazar are the traditional names given to the three kings, you know. It's like all this bizarre mythology that's been constructed. You, you guys go. You go. We'll just stay here at home. No, they all want to go. I, I, this is how I envisage it. I envisage that they come to Jerusalem because they're not told where else to go. And the prophecy of Daniel was all about Jerusalem and the Holy Hill. And so they turn up at Jerusalem where they expect the king of the Jews to be born. And they show up there. And I imagine that there's a crew, to say the least. I imagine there's a convoy of them. I'm picturing in my mind's eye maybe hundreds of them. Enough to cause all of Jerusalem to be troubled. Enough to prevent Herod from taking two or three men aside and killing them. Enough to cause a stir. And so he assembles the chief priests and the scribes and inquires of them where the Messiah was to be born. And they told him Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, You, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judea, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And so the ruler, the one with the scepter, the one with the right to rule, is going to come from Bethlehem. So they now know where he's going to be born, and so they, they go. He summons the wise men secretly, ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. Now that's crucial, because <clears throat> it wasn't like the star appeared, and they went to Babylonian airport, and they jumped on a direct flight, and they got over to Jerusalem, and they were there a few days later. This was a journey that would have taken them almost certainly well over a year, perhaps, perhaps a lot longer. It was a long, long, long journey over land with a whole crew of them. They would have had to take in supplies and belongings to make the journey over desert areas and wilderness areas. This was not easy. This was a huge undertaking. So how old is this king? When did the star arise? That's what they're trying to find out. And we're going to get a clue of this later. So he sends him to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. And when you found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. 
In other words, I don't know about this. You go find him in Bethlehem, then you tell me exactly where he is, and I can come and worship him as well. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. Now, to know that he's going to be in Bethlehem gave you quite a region, and there's a lot of houses. How do you know which one? You don't. So Herod doesn't know how to find the son. He knows how to, how to find this king. He, he knows in what area he's in, but he doesn't know exactly where. So he, these guys are, well, they got this far. Let's see if they can find him and they can tell me. And then they are given the location by this star, this glorious shining of God, moving and then coming to rest over the specific house where he was. So the star... Uh, that they had seen when it rose, went before them until it came out to rest over the place where the child was. Now, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy, and coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him, and they said, yo, to the shepherds. No, they didn't, because the shepherds weren't there. Notice the changes. Where are Mary and Joseph and Jesus? In a house, not in a stable. And Mary and Joseph are there with what? The child, not the baby. The Greek word is a different word. This, Jesus is no longer a baby. He is now a child. He's now what we might call a toddler, toddling around. He's gone from that baby stage to that toddling stage. In other words, this is a period of over a year, probably nearer two years, that has transpired from the time of the shepherds worshipping to the time of the magi worshipping. And so, can you imagine this? And I, and I want you to get this when we look at this text, okay? It says, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. The star that they followed for two years. The star that they waited nearly five centuries for. That that star is now over a single house. That's where the king is. That's what they've waited for. That's what they've travelled two years for. That's what they've waited five centuries for. That's what Daniel took over the leadership of the Magi for, for this one moment. I think that's, that is a cause for great joy, do you not? That everything comes to a head and that they come and worship. And why is it that we associate three kings, three Magi, because they have three gifts. And we don't really have much time now left. I don't want to go on too much further. But when they fall down and they worship him, they open their treasures, they give him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And there is significance in these gifts. And the gifts are here. And, I, and obviously, the gold is going to become significant later in the story when they have to make a flight to Egypt because they have to... Uh, go a different way and not go back to Herod. He doesn't get the information he wants and that's what leads him then to slaughter all the children of that region. And notice when he slaughters them, he slaughters them, uh, looking ahead to verse 16, those who were two years old or under, according to the time that he'd ascertained from the wise men. That's why it was probably a two-year later period, because that's the age. Well, they saw, he saw the star two years ago, so any kids that are two years, they need to go. And so that's when they are, uh, the, Jesus and his family flee, and of course that's another whole story. 
The one thing I want to focus on just as we finish is this. That there is amongst the gifts, the gift of myrrh. Now I could spend a lot of time on the gifts, but I won't. I just want to talk about myrrh because I am out of time. Myrrh is, represents death. And there is amongst the recognition of the kingship, there is amongst the recognition of the spiritual side of the Messiah, there is the recognition of the coming death of the Messiah. How did they know that? Because the anointed one of Daniel 9 is going to be cut off. That meant death. That's what the Jewish expression meant, meant death. The Messiah was going to be born and he was going to be the king who had the right to rule. But at a point in time, he would be cut off. The prophecies of Isaiah were known by them. Daniel would have had that, like he had Jeremiah. And they had a prophecy specific to them, telling them that the Messiah would be cut off. That means that these magi had a better understanding of the Messiah than the religious leaders of Jesus' day. It means that they had a better understanding of the Messiah than Peter did when Peter said, Jesus, you can't die. That doesn't fit into my understanding of the Messiah. That the Jewish understanding of the Messiah had become so corrupted that they couldn't understand that the Messiah would come and die. They only understood him coming to rule and reign. And yet there was a school a school that had a history, a foundation grounded in false gods, false worship, astrology, that had been taken over by God to give a foundation, a new foundation, that would allow for a school of astrologers to have an understanding of the Jewish Messiah. And here's the key thing, and a desire to worship him that would lead them to come and to worship and to bring amongst their gifts the gift of myrrh. Because they knew right from the beginning that the one who came to live also came to die. If we could only have a fraction of the faith of Babylonian magi, if we could only have a fraction of their faith. We're in a time when people feel it's too much trouble, too much risk to go to church. And these people travelled for years over desert landscape for a single act of worship of Christ. Their entire existence, their entire identity was based around the worship of Jesus Christ. And everything else in their life was was subservient to that. That the worship of Jesus was worth every trouble, every difficulty, every risk, everything. There was nothing that was more important. And they, in their act of faith... They stirred up the entirety of Jerusalem, probably not a favourable thing. And they came and they worshipped Christ 
in a way that has been preserved for us forevermore as an example to us. Can we not be prepared to stir up trouble in Burbank because of our desire to worship Jesus? Are we not prepared to take personal risk? Are we not prepared to go to great trouble and to great lengths to worship Jesus? Or is he really not that important to us? The Magi challenge us. They challenge us because we live at a time when Jesus is an afterthought. We live at a time where Jesus is something we simply tag on to the rest of our lives. We live in an era where we consider worship to be something that we simply do here and there when it's convenient to us rather than being our lifeblood and our very breath and the essence of our being. And so I pray and I hope that we are challenged by them this day. I hope and I pray that we would come to 2021 and we would want to have but an ounce of the faith of the Magi in our own hearts. Where nothing is too great, nothing is too much trouble, nothing is too big an ask, not for the sake of the worship of Christ. And where we will go where we need to go and do what we need to do. And that our desire to worship God, as outlined in the scriptures, would be for us the greatest of all desires. And the entirety of our lives and our weeks would revolve around Jesus. That we would long to come together and gather with the saints and to worship together. And to be equipped and to minister to one another so that we might mature together into the image of Christ. That we might bring glory to his name together. Because if the Magi put the chief priests to shame in the days of Christ, may they not put us to shame in our own ear. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy name. We pray that you would encourage us this day, challenge us this day. We pray that we might have faith like the Magi. May we stand upon your word like them. May we act upon your word like them. And may we do all that you command us. By the power of your spirit and for the glory of your name, we pray. Amen.